A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 to 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are of offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Yet Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am.
So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of God. Many of you have probably heard me say that Jesus doesn't say that promising that following him will be easy, but he promises that it will be worth it. Now, worth it in what way? In numerous ways. That's part of learning. It's part of discipleship. But one of the things Jesus says is, if you trust me, if you follow me, you will experience freedom. That's something good. It's something important, but it's something uh, that is not easy for us. So in verses 31 to 32, he's talking to those who believe him. And there are so many people in John's gospel who are skeptical, who are rejecting him, who are hostile that sometimes we forget there are many who believe, and yet Jesus is recognizing for some of those who, 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 for whom things are making sense and they're sort of drawn to Jesus. Uh, Jesus has a word here about discipleship to make sure that the belief is not shallow, that the belief actually is taking root. And so he says in verse 31 to, the, to those who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so one of the things Jesus says he's doing is he's coming to set us free, but also the path of discipleship is learning. And as we're learning, we should be growing in a knowledge of truth, and that knowledge should be bringing increasing freedom. But Jesus is saying, um, but if your belief remains shallow, you're not going to experience that increasing freedom. And you can see again in John that immediately the conversation gets confused. And so he says, the truth will set you free. And they respond, what are you talking about? We've never been slaves to anyone. Um, Shows the complexity of what's going on. So if you read through John's gospel, the Passover seems to be important as it keeps coming up. Jesus will be crucified on the Passover. The Passover, the annual celebration to say, remember that we were slaves and we were crying out for mercy. It was impossible. We couldn't get ourselves out and God heard, God saw, he came and he he did for us what we could not do for ourselves and he set us free and he made us his people. And it makes it odd when when, uh, their response is we've never been slaves to anyone. The, The same kind of response many of us would have as we open up this passage and Jesus says, believe me and you'll experience freedom. A lot of us would say, free, you're free from what? What is he even talking about? Well, that's what we're going to look at. Jesus promises a kind of freedom and a growing freedom, but what do you need for it? I'm going to highlight three things from this passage. We need the truth. We need the son, S-O-N. Uh, and then we need something else that I'm not remembering. Hopefully by the time I get there, I will remember. <laughs> so stay with me. There will be a third. It's the word. I remembered it now. Hopefully I will still remember it later. All right, the truth. That's where we're going to begin. One of the things Jesus says you need is the truth. Um, and, and that's something I think is a starting place most of us intuitively know. So the language of this passage, religious language, could sometimes be off-putting or confusing to different contexts. So Jesus talks about sin. Jesus talks about death. That maybe we don't resonate with, but slavery and lies... That's something that modern people are aware of. That's part of our world. That's a a problematic part of our history. And even it's a part of our current reality. And so you will hear a lot of people talking about modern day slavery. What is it? Well, there are various expressions of it. But one, for example, is human trafficking 
Well, slavery in what way? So the imagery we have of historic slavery is people in shackles, people kept in a cage. Uh, and there are people claiming that there are human beings that sort of are independent of the people that presumably are controlling them. And, and so the idea is, well, why don't you just leave and actually I'll help you, and, and yet people don't. Well, what's wrong? And that's where we're in tune with, well, there's a form of slavery uh, where people can be controlled not simply with tools of metal, chains and, and prisons, um, but with human coercion, with exploitation, with manipulation. And so lying is actually one of the awful realities of how we relate in this world. And so we're in tune with the power of lies to control someone. So, uh, so you flatter someone. You make promises to someone so great that you never intend on keeping them. You imply threats, and when necessary, you explicitly make clear that there are threats. Uh, these things in sort of the, the dynamics of trafficking have some people feeling utterly stuck, can, can make no choices, doing what I don't want to do, and you could give them wisdom and advice and offer help, and they will feel utterly trapped. It's like there are these invisible things holding them down. We're aware of that dynamic, and, and maybe trafficking is a more extreme example, but, but those are the dynamics of how people we relate. We, we flatter one another, uh, we make promises that we may have no plans on delivering, or we exaggerate, we imply that we will be punitive towards people, we punish others. Um, we relate in a way where we're trying to control one another. And Jesus is coming into this world, and he's saying, not just to his generation, but to everyone around the world, uh, there is something that is leaving people stuck. So no matter what you think will improve your life, you're, you're limited on how far you can go unless there's a radical change, unless there's freedom. And so one of the first things we need is truth. If, if the problem is manipulation, lies, false promises, we could be so caught up in that that then we can't discern and make true and good choices for ourselves because we're confused. And so one, one thing we need is truth. And that's what Jesus says is those who trust him will come to know the truth in verse 32. The truth will set you free. It's not that you will figure out how to get free on your own. Jesus is saying it's the problem is so, so difficult that you won't even understand what freedom is or how to get out of it. You need to be set free. And so one of the things that you need is truth to come into your life. Um, so many of us uh, experience this. When you, when you look at, for example, the dynamics of shame that are, are functioning for any of us. Uh, shame wants us to keep hidden about certain things, and therefore, uh, most of us live to some degree certain contradictions where we're, we're not forthright about who we are or what we think, and, and that can be soul-crushing. And so, so in many places or particular communities, there's an awareness of being open, of being honest, of confessing, just admitting. Uh, and experiencing a freedom from that. And so there are various expressions of that these days of people who have felt like my whole life I sort of lived a lie, I was ashamed, and then as soon as I was open, that brought great relief. And it shows the power of truth and the, the harm of lies, but the mistakes some people make, because it's so freeing and so relieving to just be honest for once, is not to realize that there are further steps. In other words, the relief is so great, but there are still now things you need to do. 
So Jesus says, I have come so that there would be truth. So confess, be honest, be who you are. But I'm not just leaving you there then to get on with your life, but there are other things you need. You need grace, you need direction, you need help. And so Jesus is calling people to that level of truth and transparency and saying there will be a relief if you can actually start to, to get at the root of who you are and cast away shame and darkness and trust me and follow me, then you will find that life is better, less burdensome, but still hard. Now there are new challenges, but trust me, and, and not only will the truth of what I'm speaking into your life set you free, but as you come to know the truth, you will experience increasing freedom. And what Jesus is saying again and again in John and here quite explicitly to his audience is so long as we are caught up in this confused um, web of half-truths and untruths, um, we can't discern the truth. So in verse 37, he says, my word finds no place in you. He, you know, if you think of that parable of the sower, he speaks his word and it lands, but it, it doesn't take deep root. Um, uh, because we're not making space for that. And so in verse 55, he says, I would be a liar, um, but he's claiming I actually am the truth and I'm speaking truth. And therefore, if you have a little bit of belief, open, make this space so that my light could shine into your life because I am coming to set you free. So in verse 38, he says something interesting. He says, I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. So quite, quite a sharp critique that he makes, which is that uh, people are under the power of the devil, this figure in the Bible who's a divider, an accuser, and a liar, and a murderer. Jesus says, I speak of what I've seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. Jesus is making quite a profound claim. Throughout John's gospel, he's saying, God is real, but you don't see him. There's an alienation, a separation, there's darkness. Um, you have heard of God because God has raised up prophets, God has given you the scriptures, God has acted in your midst. But he makes a unique claim, which is that he's not just another person that God is sending as a messenger, but Jesus existed with the Father and now is coming not simply with a message, but to, uh, to speak about a reality that he has seen. So he says, I speak of what I've seen with my Father. He's claiming to say something true that we otherwise cannot know. But then he says, but you're doing what you have heard from your father. So you go back to the story of Genesis 3, the Adam and Eve in the garden story with the serpent. And what's very interesting about the story is this figure, the serpent, the deceiver, shows up and he wants Adam and Eve to see something, but it's not himself. He doesn't say, look at me, I'm the serpent, follow me. He says, look at the tree that God has told you not to eat from. And then listen to what I'm saying. And what he's doing is he's He's using deception to change their perception. So God has, has given them a tour of the garden in creation. All of this is yours. Here's one thing. Don't eat it because in the day that you do, you will surely die. And then the serpent, don't look at me. Don't pay attention to me. Look at that tree. Doesn't it look as delicious as the other trees? And so Jesus is saying, you are listening. There's somebody that's speaking into humanity, but you don't know who it is. And that's when the, the, the person who points the finger expects us to look at what he's pointing to and doesn't expect us to turn back and ask questions. And so Adam and Eve questioned God rather than questioning the serpent, God who they had seen, God who had shown them things. Now Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what I've seen. You are doing what you're hearing, and you're listening to a voice that's deceiving you. 
And so Jesus is saying, I'm coming to make the truth known. Uh, so that interesting thing uh, where, where, where the craftiness of the serpent is not to come and say, God doesn't exist, God is terrible. He just sort of reinterprets, well, actually, if God really cared for you, would he withhold that good thing from you? And he only says one thing that feels like a flat-out contradiction. He says, you will not truly die. And actually, the context of Adam and Eve, the story, they didn't know what death was. It was an idea. God warned them plainly and clearly, if you eat of that tree, you will die. Death is terrible. But what do you know of death when you only know good? The serpent is saying, but if you eat of that tree, you will know good and evil. They're going to learn what death is uh, in reality. And so the one contradiction is something that they couldn't fully understand. They needed to trust God. You will not surely die. Now look again. That was a lie. Now we know death. And now that we know death, now that we don't know God, we're confused about who's speaking the truth. Who should we be listening to? Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what I've seen. So my message is different. I'm saying, look at me so you could examine me. I'm not trying to trick you. Uh, whatever standards you have, watch me, follow me, ask questions. I'm not trying to follow, fool you. It's the person who's saying, don't look at me, look at them, and then trying to turn you against everyone that you should also apply some critical thinking to. So in verse 40, he says, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's how complex things are. Jesus says, I've come to make the truth known. And either we're interested but confused. How does this make sense? Or there's something he's doing that's exposing something we don't want to expose and it's stirring anger. And the very one who comes and says, I'm coming to help you, we resent. And those are the dynamics of our complex world. The person who is coerced will sometimes fear the person who's trying to help them. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to set you free. And so he has these sharp words in verse 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. You will not surely die. Well, actually, his goal was that you would die. Uh, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus in John is saying, on the one hand, God is not just some thing out there, but God is personal. You need to know God. You need to listen to God. But also lies are not just like a tool at work in your life. That's what some of us think. If I could just manipulate the situation, it's some, just some thing out there that I could use to my advantage. Jesus is saying a lie is not just a thing that you're bringing into your life using and then letting go. He's saying a lie, a lie has an origin, it's personal. It comes from the father of lies, one who is uh, determined to accuse and to lie and to divide and to murder. So be very careful, not only believing lies, but, but having the character where you're perpetuating lies. Where does that come from? So uh, a warning about lies in the ministry of Jesus is, is two questions when you're tempted to lie. Where is that coming from and where is it going? And so when you look at the times that you're tempted to lie, uh, there's an opportunity if you want to grow, if you are a disciple of Jesus, or if you're somebody simply wanting to grow as a human being, to stop and think, why is it I'm wanting to lie right now? Whether it's blatant contradiction, or whether it's withholding something, or whether it's adding and spinning to the truth. Why am I doing this? And you'll find if you trace it down, typically either within us or somewhere around us, there's something very problematic. It's our own fear, 
And so we're afraid and we want to control our lives and therefore we want to control other people. So we lie. It's our own greed, for example. I want this thing and I don't believe I will get it. So I now need to do what, what may be a stretch beyond to assure that I will get it. Usually when we're lying, there's something in us or maybe there's something on the outside. And both of these are complex, but it's really complex, for example, if you work in a workplace environment where sort of the culture of how things are done in order to get things done uh, is not fully in the level. This is what we tell our clients, but we're not telling them this. And that could be really hard to be in that place where, where every day at work is a dilemma of what does faithfulness look like? Actually, is this okay? Do I need to speak the truth? Can I do this? Do I need to quit my job? Um, the fact that lying is so woven into human relations makes every relationship difficult. We're suspicious of one another. Any job is going to be difficult. Where is this coming from? And that's something that we need to stop and look at our lives. And so, so maybe you don't quit your job immediately, but there are times to look and realize actually so baked into how we do things is something so problematic that I can't be part of it. Uh, or sometimes you realize, you know what, I thought that there was an area of my life that was okay, but the fact that I keep lying has taught me that I'm trying to cover up something in my life that I'm just not wanting to address. And so that's where the possibility of growth uh, is available to us. So where is the lie coming from? Jesus says the lie is not coming from a good place. There's a, a spirit at work in you um, that's controlling you. You're not free. If you're just listening and doing, thinking this is me and my choice, making a decision about myself, where is that coming from? But also, what impact is it having? Do we believe that freedom is valuable? Well, if we're lying to someone, why are we borrowing freedom from somebody else? Why are we not allowing them to make their choices and not speaking clearly and plainly? So Jesus in Matthew 5, his, uh, uh, one of the largest collections of his teachings to his disciples, he warns us, don't swear on heaven or on earth. Why do we do that? Well, because human beings are fundamentally unbelievable. So we need some sort of commitment, some sort of contract. And so it starts at a young age where I cross my fingers, I swear on my mother, whatever kids say, and then whatever sophisticated ways that we come up with it. Jesus says, but uh, your yes be yes, but your no be no. People who know you should just know that you can tell the truth. And you shouldn't have to try to convince them of it. If they don't believe it, well, just be a person of truth and let the truth do its work. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Anything more than this comes from evil or from the evil one. That's what Jesus says. Where is this coming from? Jesus is saying, there's something at work that's shaping who you are and how you behave, and it's destroying you and everyone around you. And we're so confused we can't get out of it. We can't believe a message of good news because we're too suspicious. So when truth actually is before us, it doesn't land in our hearts. And Jesus is saying, actually, one of the things you need for freedom is to not only hear the truth, but to be people who are committed to being truthful. And so practice that. Catch yourself when you're looking to just exaggerate a little bit, looking to hide, looking to contradict, and look, you need to exercise wisdom. There's some of you that can't restrain your anger, and so you just tell somebody something cruel, and you say, well, I just need to be honest. You do need to be honest. You don't need to express every terrible thing you're thinking. And so this is actually really hard for us to grow. What does it mean to be plain and honest? It doesn't mean you always need to tell everybody. Everyone doesn't have a right to your deepest secret. You don't need to express everything. That's how hard this is. How do we live straightforward, plain, truthful lives? Jesus says, if you're not doing that, you're not going to discern the truth. So actually to be set free, you need to be convinced 
that in telling the truth, that it now is aligning you with the truth. Because if we're committed to deceiving others, uh, the cost of that is you will live with confusion. So we need to be set free with truth. That's the first thing. Jesus says the truth will set you free. He says there's another thing that will set you free, and that is himself. He refers to himself as the Son of God. And so in verse 36, he says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that word indeed seems to be underscoring a certain kind of freedom that he can uniquely offer us. That otherwise, yes, there's human growth, yes, there's progress, but there's not freedom unless the Son sets you free. But if he does, you will be free indeed. Um, and so uh, in, in verse 34, he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin or anyone who commits sin. The word practice is helpful because it's something, what, what are you devoting yourself to? Well, if you're doing over and over things that are problematic, that, that you know go against your moral conscience or, or whatever it is, um, you know, often in those cases, we feel like I'm just doing what I want. This is freedom actually to not give in to the pressures of others, but I'm gonna do what I feel. And the test case is, well, actually try not doing what you feel. And then let's ask the question, are you free? And then you realize, oh, my doing it is not an expression of freedom. The fact that I can't not do it is showing that this desire is playing a role in my life, that um, the more you wanna grow as a decent human being, you realize how complex we are, that this thing that I thought I was exercising in freedom. As soon as I try to stop doing it, it's showing I actually don't really know and understand freedom. So Jesus warns us, are you practicing sin? If you are, if you're committing this perpetually, if that's the way of life, you are not free. There's a form of slavery going on in your life. Um, and so it's interesting that then Jesus goes to a conversation about Abraham. So he's talking about himself being the son whose father is God, and he's inviting us to know the father, and he's warning us that we are at risk of being children of the devil, this accuser, this deceiver. Um, and again, if you find yourself saying, that is so crazy that in the 21st century we're talking about the devil, he doesn't exist. Um, that's kind of a complicated conversation to have, but keep in mind the very nature of the devil is to make sure that you don't believe that he exists. And therefore, who are you listening to that's informing how you're thinking about things? Uh, Jesus is saying, actually, uh, if you want to look at an example in the Bible of how God is going to try to solve this problem, the beginning of the start of it, look to Abraham. So you read the Genesis story, and it begins wonderfully in Genesis 1 with God creating all things. Genesis 2, setting people in the garden, giving them freedom and purpose. But then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve turn. But then you follow the stories afterwards. So, so what does it look like for people that no longer are with God, who are overwhelmed with the shame, that now have all these corrupt desires? Well, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. A resentful guy kills his brother. Um, there's a genealogy in Genesis 5. Genesis 6 starts the story of Noah. The violence in the earth was so terrible, uh, God sends a flood to sort of bring an end to our killing one another, that with the hope through Noah, there could be a new start. How does the new start with Noah go? Uh, that story ends Genesis 9, Genesis 10 and 11. Uh, let's build a tower, the Tower of Babel. Um, God says, if this is what they're doing with their wisdom and technology, there's no end to the evil that they will do. In other words, there's so much good that we've endowed them with, but, but look at what human beings are doing. So 
So up to Genesis 11, you have a picture of this impossible situation that Genesis 2, the task to fill the earth like a garden, to cause it to flourish, to make it grow. Now by Genesis 10 and 11, the earth is being filled with violence, with lies, with manipulation. So Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. And he promises Abraham, trust me, uh, and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Quite an interesting thing to say that to Abraham who was old and did not have children. He said to Abraham, you will be a light to the nations. Your descendants in this world are called to shine light so that this dark world would be taken over by goodness. Um, I'm going to highlight two things from the Abraham story. Why does Jesus say, if you were of your father Abraham, it might be different? What is it about Abraham who was called and set apart in his generation? And the promise to him would be fulfilled at some point. Jesus is highlighting that's being fulfilled in his generation. Well, here's two things about Abraham. One is in the Abraham stories, Abraham was a hospitable guy. People came by and, and Abraham invited them, come into my home, eat. One of the interesting things about the Abraham story is he did not realize that some of these people who appeared as human beings were actually angels, messengers of God. Abraham is hospitable. He welcomes them, he feeds them, and then they reveal, we come with a message. Your wife, Sarah, will have a child. What an impossible thing to believe, but, but Abraham believed. And here's Jesus saying, and I'm visiting you, and you are not welcoming me. You are not feeding me. You are planning to kill me. And so if Abraham were your father, uh, would you not welcome me and listen to the message that I'm giving you? And so Abraham shows that he, there was something unique in the world, and then it plays itself out with one of the well-known but most confusing, perplexing, terrifying parts of the Abraham story. Abraham believes God, who promised that the son who comes about, Isaac, a child of promise given by a miracle, an old couple unable to have children have this child. So now Abraham says, through this descendant, you will fulfill the promise that uh, I will have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and sand in the earth. And he believes God has told him to sacrifice Isaac. What a confusing thing. Uh, what, you know, what an awful passage. And yet the, the, the quick takeaway for today is somehow Abraham trusted that God is good and God can still fulfill his promise. And he was prepared to be obedient to it, which of course God would not ask him to do something so atrocious. So God intervenes and says, Abraham, do not kill your only son. But Abraham demonstrated something that he actually trusted in God's goodness and promise enough that he faced something that would make him think it would be impossible for God to fulfill his promise if I do what I think God is asking. And how could I remain thinking God is good and yet I'm gonna trust him. And his trust was vindicated that God did prove good. God did fulfill his promises. He needed to get through that moment. Um, my hope is none of us will face testing of that severity, but in every person's life, there are these crossroads. Do I believe God is good? Do I believe that if I'm faithful to what God says, it will work out according to what I assume is on the trajectory of a life honoring God. And in the short term, it's confusing. Things do not work out as we think, and the things that we fear happen. Um, are we willing to be those people who believe the truth of God such that um, we will listen to him? And what Jesus is 
doing you showing up and saying, it doesn't look like it. <laughs> it looks like you're so confused that, um, that you need to be set free. So what have I come to do? I've come not simply to declare the truth, but I am the truth. I've come not simply to announce that you can be set free, but I've come to set you free. Of course, the story of Abraham he alludes to is fulfilled in his day. God would not ask any of us to sacrifice our only son. But Jesus is saying, but I have come because the father plans to sacrifice his only son. Not that there's the mean God and the very kind Jesus, and so Jesus is going to be the one who's going to deal with the mean father. Jesus is saying salvation has always been of God. Freedom is always of God. And God has come now to fulfill his promises to set us free. And therefore, who will bear the burden? Who will bear the consequences of all of this confusion and violence and evil? And the Christian story is God is not calling us to bear it because we can't, but God himself will. So Jesus refers to Abraham here because what Abraham hoped in, he says, is being fulfilled now in this generation. And so John, at the beginning of John's gospel, in, in John 1, verses 12 to 13, uh, John writes, to all who received him, being Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. And that's what Jesus is, is teaching us here, which is actually what you need is new life. You don't need to improve your life. You're utterly stuck. The, con the end of the lives that we live is death. Uh, that's the consequence. What Jesus is saying is, I'm coming to give new life. And if you trust in me, there's a spiritual birth that will fundamentally change your identity, your reality, your heart. It will give you new desires, new perceptions. And if you trust me and follow me and grow in that, you will experience increasing freedom. It's something God gives to us that comes from the gift of Christ who lays down his life and the gift of the Spirit who's poured out to open our eyes so that we can start to see, so that we can start to hear. So in that context, Jesus says something both confusing, but in his context, quite offensive. In verse 58, he's talking about people longing to see Abraham's day, and they say, well, look, there's Abraham and the prophets. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And if you're familiar with God revealing his divine name to Moses, I am you know that not only is he claiming to exist before Abraham, which seems odd, but he claims that this is a visitation of God. Before Abraham was, I am. And he's doing something here to finite beings. He's saying God is eternal. God has no beginning and no end. You as human beings do have a beginning, but God's plan from the beginning was that you would have no end. It's because of deception that death has come into the world. He's come to free us, not simply from sin, but from death, the consequences of sin. And so in verse 46, he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? And that's the thing about the ministry of Jesus. They're resenting him. They're plotting against him, and they will kill him. But he's saying, which of you can convict me of sin? In other words, what am I doing? And now they say, you've claimed to be before Abraham. You're claiming divinity for yourself, which, of course, would be a terrible blasphemy if it weren't true. And Jesus keeps saying, but I'm coming to reveal to you the truth. So, so pay attention. So which one of you convicts me of sin? And in verse 59, it says they, or 58 or 59, it says they picked up stones. Now, remember how John 8 began? If you were with us a few weeks ago, you could go and read John 8. They bring before Jesus to test him a woman 
caught in adultery and they say, Moses tells us to stone such a person. What would you do? And Jesus says, let the person who's without sin cast the first stone. And they don't cast a stone. They leave, though this woman had been caught. But by the end of John 8, they're picking up stones and they're going to cast them at Jesus who says, but what sin do you convict me of? There's some lie, some corruption, uh, that now the one who comes to make the truth known, they plan on killing. And what Jesus is saying is, that's the point all along. Don't kill her. (laughs) Don't pick up stones against her. Don't kill these people. But let's put an end to this, and I'm the one who comes to to put an end to it. I am the one who will receive the penalty, the punishment, the hostility, to put an end to it, to finally set people free. So in verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So here he is speaking from an eternal perspective. Before Abraham was, I am. And if you believe in me, you will not see death. He's reframing human existence. I mean, what what do we know about human existence? Every person has a beginning and we have an end. We're born and we die. Jesus is saying, I have no beginning. You have a beginning. I have no end. If you are with me, you will have no end. If anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. Of course, people die. But he's redefining death. Death is not the end of your existence. Death is a a doorway into an ongoing reality. And so if you believe that this life is all there is, if you believe death is all there is, you're believing something different from God's design. And he's saying, if you keep my words, that death will not be your end. And he's doing something interesting in saying something that was hard for them to understand and hard for us to understand. What is Jesus saying? If we believe in him, we will surely not die. And see, that's God's purpose from the beginning. He creates the tree of life and says, don't go anywhere near anything that's going to bring death. And the serpent says, eat of that tree. If you do, you will surely not die. And we believe the serpent. And then find out that God spoke the truth. And then Jesus comes and says, if you believe in me, you will surely not die. And we think, that's crazy. How could he claim that? It's easy to believe a liar, a a deceiver, than to believe somebody who tells the truth. The serpent wants us to die for no benefit of his own. Jesus wants us to live and pays the cost by laying down his life. He dies so that we will live. He passes through death on the other side and is raised and says, if you trust me on the other side of the grave, you will live. So who's telling you the truth? Me who actually faced death for you and came out on the other side or anyone else trying to tell you? Uh, the death, meaning of death and its significance. Jesus is saying, hold to my word. I lay down my life for you and I will share my life with you. So if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. You will know the truth. And those who hold to my word will not see death, meaning death is not the end of your existence. Death is a part of our eternal existence. And then the question is, do we want to spend eternity with one who loves us and tells us the truth? And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm calling you to invite you to, to life with God, to be restored. So we need the truth. We need the Son, Jesus, and we need the Word. So here's the last thing about the Word. Jesus comes with a message for us. And clearly he's talking about Scripture because he's the one who fulfills Scripture, but he's talking about um, you know, the Spirit that brings this to life. It's, it's our study of the Bible 
prayerfully as then we try to apply it to our lives, Jesus is saying, this is the nature of true discipleship. It's not simply um, being impressed with what I say and then going on in your life, uh, going on with your life, but it's actually believing me enough to follow, to actually join with me, and then to trust that I'm telling you the truth, and I'm watching over with you, and I will not leave you, and that if you stay with me, your life will turn out very differently. There's an ongoing freedom that in discipleship, we have sometimes brief moments, sometimes extended moments of confusion, of failure, of not understanding things. Jesus says, still hold to my word. Don't give up. In every moment, listen to what I'm saying. Go back, study the Bible, pray, try to make faithful decisions. And over time, you will find uh, that you're having an increasing freedom. You'll look back at your life over 10 and 20 year periods and realize um, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, uh, integrity, is better than any corrupt thing I could have done. And so in verse 31, he says, if you abide in my word, if you remain, if you keep my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we've been set free with this new identity that Jesus gives to us. You were not a child of God, but your father was the devil. But now if you believe in me, you are a child of God, born of the spirit, given by grace, and now you need to understand who you are as a new person, as a person who's loved, as a person who has light in their life, as a person who has access to the truth. There's a relearning of life, and Jesus is saying, abide, remain, keep going. Don't give up. If you're really my disciple, you're not just looking for the next good thing and moving on, but you're, you're believing that if you follow me, you will grow in freedom. And so discipleship, following Jesus, is that constant realizing, I don't understand I don't know what to do. And you're tempted to give up, or you're tempted to lie, or you're tempted to do something. And Jesus is saying, stay trusting me. Apply my ways. And if they're not working, come back, and I will stay with you. And so, so we need to be reshaped. We need to uh, have these new habits. When he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, what he's saying now is practice uprightness. Speak the truth. Be generous. Love people. You'll find that when you devote yourself to those things, the world is not organized to reward you for them you'll find that actually you start to experience freedom. And so trust me, do it. Um, where I grew up, we didn't play soccer a lot just because there weren't soccer fields. So we played some version of baseball, like wiffle ball or stickball or whatever. We played football, we played basketball. I was never a great athlete, but those, every, every sport that I learned that involved a ball involved my reaching for and grabbing for balls. So then in college, I met these people that played soccer. And so one of the things I realized if I wanted to play with them is I needed to gain skills with my feet that I didn't have. But what kept happening in a game, if I was relatively close to someone and they tried to kick the ball by me and if it came off the ground, my instinct, I'd put my hand out. So you can imagine people growing up playing soccer being like, who invited the guy that keeps grabbing the ball? I was not popular on the soccer field, but as I was learning, just realizing there's an instinct. You know, my whole life when I, when I see a ball coming anywhere near me, I've been trained to reach out, and now I'm doing something utterly different. <laughs> you can't do that. And Jesus is saying, look, we've been formed in life. You've got your instincts. You have your desires. There's ways of functioning. And I'm calling you to remain in the same world, but to live differently. And now you're going to be tempted to lie because that's what you always did. But you need to stop. <laughs> you're going to be tempted to pick on people, but don't do it. You're going to be tempted to, uh, to skim off the top. You need to recognize those instincts are the very things keeping you from being free. And discipleship, if you're really my disciple, you're going to learn the truth. 
You're going to trust me. You're going to apply these things. You're not going to practice sin because you have come to know that sin is destructive. You're going to practice righteousness because you now believe if God is good and upright, I want to live anchored in that goodness. And so I'm going to relearn the Christian life. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Um, God's word becomes increasingly clear as we mature in the faith. It's always hard. It's never natural to us. But that study of scripture, the application of scriptural life in the spirit brings increasing freedom. So then all of a sudden, truth makes more sense. Falsehood is more discernible. And it's that kind of discipleship um, that Jesus is calling to us, us to. This week, you will be challenged. You will have some hard situation. It might be minor. It might be an interaction with somebody on the subway. It might be major, an ongoing difficult situation. You will have the opportunity to do what's natural to everyone, to lie, to be overwhelmed by fear, to allow anger and bitterness to take root. Or you can practice the way of God and try to respond differently. And uh, try it this week. Next week, as every week, we have a confession of sin. We do that every week because we try it and we've got our old habits. But go out and do it and watch for God. Pray, God, show me this week what it looks like to live an upright life, to, to walk in faithfulness and freedom rather than just doing what everyone else is doing and my being caught up in it. Um, week by week, if you do that in another year, if we were to have a little conversation about this, we would find that uh, there's a lot more freedom, a lot more goodness in our lives. So trust God in that. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we need this kind of freedom, and we thank you that you are so determined to give it to us, that you give it to us when we don't want it, when we don't understand it, and why you don't force it on us, on a, on us you... Um, Keep pointing us back to what is true and to what is right. You have loved us. You have given yourself for us. You have invited us to follow you. And so, Lord, grant us the freedom of the Spirit to know you and your love and your truth and your light uh, and help us to conquer these patterns and habits and to get untangled from the sin and foolishness that's destroying us and our world. And so, Lord, may we be light in the world, that we would go different in order to not only enjoy the freedom of the gospel, but to bear witness in some way to your goodness, to our friends and family and neighbors and coworkers. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.